Today, Katie sits down and opens up on how she found the process in an effort to heal her relationship with her mother before it was too late. Through her work at the process, she found deep compassion and was able to walk alongside her mother during her recovery while simultaneously navigating her own sobriety. We always say in the process, never waste a good trigger. And that's exactly what Katie has done. She shares her ongoing work with sobriety and how she personally merges the worlds of her active 12-step program and Hoffman. Words Katie lives by, take what you need and leave the rest. Enjoy. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Liz Severin, and on this podcast, we engage in conversation and learn from Hoffman graduates. We'll dive deep into their journeys of self-discovery and explore how the process transformed their internal and external worlds. They share how their spirit and light now burn brighter in all directions of their lives. Their Love's Everyday Radius. Hello and welcome, Katie. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yes. So excited to have you on the podcast today. I think before we begin, we owe it to the listeners to to let them in a little bit on how you and I met. Do you care sharing that with us? Sure. Yeah. Well, we both (laughs) decided one day to attend a Hoffman process refresher course on self-compassion. It was in the North Bay. And honestly, it had been a few years since I had done the process at that time. And for no particular reason, I decided to go to this refresher course. And I was pretty grateful because I actually met each other there. I saw you across the room and we just kind of clicked. Yes, we've, we've been inseparable since. And Katie has been just paramount to welcoming me into the bay. She let me sleep on her couch. I mean, we've kind of done it all. It's just my pitch that, you know, this Hoffman community is so rich and so full of incredible humans. And you can, even if they weren't in your process, you could meet someone through the Hoffman community and they can be lifelong friends. So I'm, I'm grateful for that, Katie. Yeah, same. It was nice to just meet someone who spoke the same language. Definitely. Well, let's jump in. When did you do the process? Yeah, so I did the process in spring of 2016. And I I jumped in, I was actually dating somebody at the time who had done the process. And, you know, I was going through a lot in the moment. I was taking care of my mother who was sick with end stage liver disease caused by alcoholism. And I myself had actually about a year and a half sober at that time from alcohol. So as you can imagine, there's a lot of tricky kind of dynamics to navigate when caring for a parent, especially when, you know, there's some disease involved there. So um, I was really struggling with, with that aspect. And it really was suggested to me at the right time in my life. Wow. That's yeah, that's a lot to bring you to the process. I mean, was did you know much about it before going? Had your partner shared with it or no? Um, in fact, he was 
strangely mysterious about it. <laughs> and I was like, what am I getting myself into? Um, but I was honestly at a point where I was desperate to try anything to kind of deal with my own self. I could, a lot of what I now know our patterns were coming up for me and, and really making it difficult for me to not only show up for my mom, but you know, for myself in this time, um, I started to worry that I just wouldn't really have a relationship with her at all, despite her being very close to the end of her life. And I should add, she is still alive today and she is recovering, which is amazing all these years later. But at the time it was, it was a pretty grim diagnosis. And, you know, I got the call several times, come now if you want to say goodbye. And I was in my twenties and that's not something any of my friends um, that I knew had gone through. So it was quite a challenging time. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I just can't imagine sort of, yeah, at that young age being faced with the possibility of losing your mom. And then at the same time, you rising to the occasion of, I've got to do something to attempt to heal this relationship. So going back to the process, is there a moment during during the week that you felt really broke you open or really kind of landed you there, landed you in the process? Yeah, definitely. Um, I remember it very vividly. And for some context, one of the things that I was struggling with most with my mom's alcoholism at the time was that it almost felt like she was doing it to me. And for someone who they themselves has directly gone through the hold that alcoholism has on you, and I you know, had worked with many, many people trying to get sober, uh, I have so much compassion for those other people. But when it was my mom, it was completely different. And I just was filled with anger and resentment. And uh, yeah, it was particularly challenging to show up for her because of because of that. Like, you know, how dare you do this to me, even though I know myself intellectually that, you know, alcoholism is so much more than that. And it's actually very complicated. Um, and so there was, you know, part of the process where I really got to explore what my mom's life may have been like in her past, you know, long before I ever came into her world or into the world at all. So that was pretty monumental for me, just understanding like she had a whole life before I ever existed um, and understanding a little bit more about her past and her parents really shifted my perspective entirely. What would you say shifted your perspective and kind of what do you think it helped helped you see differently? It helped not make it about me. And it helped me see her as a person, not just my mom. It all of a sudden like felt like all of the resentments, everything that I tied to every single little thing she did was removed. And then I just saw it as like, I had like neutrality around the situation. I saw her making the choices she made because that was the best choice for her in any given moment. Yeah, it's beautiful, Katie. I, what I hear in that too is like you saw her pain as hers. It was her pain that she was taking on. Yes, it was impacting you and, and creating this ripple effect. But to really say you're a human and you're my mom, 
you know, you've had this life and these experiences and your own pain that's independent of, of my pain. I know that can get, it can get tricky, you know, with that dynamic and that relationship of starting to feel the identities get enmeshed, right? And it's like, she does this, this is a reflection of me and vice versa. Exactly. I mean, something as small as her, you know, picking up the chocolate bar and eating it, I would just, you know, it means something completely different to me um, in those moments. So to really understanding like, maybe she's just eating a chocolate bar. (laughs) And that is it. Tell us a little more about that. What was it meaning to you? Yeah, I mean, to me, it was, you know, she wasn't taking care of herself. She was relying on her daughter to parent her just not making wise decisions, essentially, that I would eventually have to pay for, you know, like with my time, my emotions and finances also, when really it's like, no, she just wants a chocolate bar. <laughs> it's it's literally that simple. Wow. Yeah. I love that because I, I think for some people, even just learning about patterns, you start to see that, right? And just how something as as seemingly mindless as eating a chocolate bar can have this ripple effect to be catastrophic in your mind and and bringing it back, reeling that back and just saying, oh, mom just wanted a chocolate bar. But it's also what patterns do, right? Patterns take us out of that present moment and we're off. We're off to the races with the the stories in our head, the crazy tape plays in our head and things transpire. Yeah. That's probably like the biggest thing that has helped me throughout my life since doing the process, which is crazy that it's been uh, six years ago. <laughs> yeah, just that that concept of kind of seeing things as, as simply neutral, instead of applying so much heavy weight to every single thing. I take that into my work life today, when somebody does something that I don't agree with, or maybe somebody forgets to, I don't know, post an announcement. I I no longer think they're doing it to me that it honestly has anything to do with me, but that likely there's a whole list of things that have happened to them that day or whatever that has caused this outcome. And that it's actually pretty benign. And I can always ask questions or, um, you know, help out instead of just immediately assuming bad intent. Yeah. Powerful. Yeah. I'd say the other part of the process that still lives within me today is this concept of the dark side. This has been something that I think has I've always known is a thing. And I think it's a thing for probably everybody, but it was really helpful for me to put a name to what that is. And for me, it was always pretty clear, um, you know, since I was pretty young, I've always struggled with anxiety. I've always, whatever. I mean, I had a very lovely, privileged upbringing, but I struggled with alcoholism and addiction. And I definitely, it was easy for me to kind of assign addiction as my dark side in the past, um, if I were to use that vocabulary for it. And I really, really enjoyed kind of taking this next approach to within Hoffman, like after I had gotten sober, because I was kind of coming to the point where my dark side was no longer uh, leading me to a drink. It was no longer, you know, giving me that like longing feeling to be, you know, checked out or drunk or whatever. It was actually other things. I, I was realizing that like, yes, it's great. I removed alcohol from my life, but a bunch of other things started boiling up, which makes 
complete sense. Um, with addiction, it is often the result of people self-medicating other underlying issues. Um, at least it was for me. And that anxiety that I had lived with since I was a child just, you know, came, came back with a vengeance. And we find other ways to soothe ourselves, right? Um, there's many different avenues people can go with that. But uh, for me, it's changed over the years. I got sober in 2014. And basically what that looks like for me today is completely different what that looks like for me when I first got sober. And I'm really grateful for that, right? Like when I'm anxious today, I will, I don't know, like sometimes I'll play a video game for a long time and lose sleep. Sometimes I, you know, I reach out to a friend and talk about it, even though I know my intellect is telling me that's crazy. Don't do that. But maybe I need to text an ex-boyfriend, <laughs> whatever it is. It is a lot more benign than it used to be. Like I'm no longer kind of, you know, destroying my body in this way. I'm really grateful for that. But it's very obvious to me that the dark side is very much there. It's just now I have more control over what I do with that. And I think you bring up such an important just understanding, right? That when we talk about it at the process, we can't kill the dark side, right? But what we can do is get to know that voice and recognize quicker when it's coming, you know? And so it's interesting to kind of hear this experience of the dark side is is shifting. It's morphing. That also just goes to prove we can't kill it. It will find a way into our life, but also knowing that you know the tools, you know the, I talk about this a lot with students, sort of knowing your weak spots, right? Knowing those where the defenses are down is a time in which the dark side may try to enter. And so it sounds like for you, you know, anxiety for you, fear of unknown, fear of whatever, right, might even be under that anxiety is a way, a window in for your dark side. But how do you, how do you deal with your dark side now when it comes? Well, like you said, it's like when our defenses are down, the dark side is is much louder. That voice is so much louder. And, and trust me, one of my patterns is to avoid these types of things. And that, like you said, does not work. It comes back with a vengeance. When those defenses are down, for me, I at least know today what causes that. And something we often say in recovery groups is halt. If you're ever feeling that anxiety, if you're feeling like uh, you need to drink, um, or in you know Hoffman terms, if you're feeling that dark side voice getting louder and louder, just halt. And what that stands for is hungry, angry, lonely, tired, and those are just covering your basic human needs, basically. <laughs> Which for me, it's like, yeah, when I'm hungry, I do not make smart choices. <laughs> I can I can vouch for that. Dark side thoughts come in when Katie is hungry. It is so real. <laughs> Anybody who knows me will say that. And it's, we've had conversations, Liz, where I'm halfway through a sentence and I need to stop and literally eat food because I'm like, oh shit, here it comes. So anyway, so what do I, what I do today is I first and foremost, before the, before the dark side even makes an appearance, I try to prevent it. You know, I shouldn't say prevent it. It's always going to be there, but I can make that voice quieter by simply like tapping in to my own needs, which you know, in Hoffman terms, might be a quad check. I might check in with my body and see what I need, you know, and I might express some gratitude for my for my actions and for my body and for my spiritual self in that moment. And it may become really clear to me in that moment, oh, 
I need to get up from my desk that I've been sitting at for eight hours straight and probably go for a walk. (laughs) Or maybe it's I need to eat a healthy meal, whatever it is. I at least have, you know, the ability to recognize that ahead of time these days. Like I said, it's been quite the journey over the last seven years of recovery. But what I know to do now, if I don't meet my basic needs. I mean, just last night, I stayed up way too late and I have been tired all day today. You know, I I get to pause. I get to text friends about that. I get to... I did a quad check right before this. Um, Thank you, Liz. <laughs> and, you know, it, it just completely changed the game for me and, and allowed me to tap into my spiritual self, um, which... Who I know has my back at any at any given time, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, I I love this idea of halt, right? Am I hungry, angry, lonely, tired? And then you know that's like you were saying a term or a concept brought into you by by the recovery. Uh, but I also I, it's just like you said, it's sort of like a little mini mini quad check. I'm checking with my body. Am I hungry? Am I tired? I'm checking with my emotional self. Am I tired, angry, lonely, whatever may be presenting itself? So I. I love seeing kind of the similarity in that. And I'm really curious, just knowing what I know of you and how incredible you are at just about everything you do. I am interested to hear a little bit more about how post-process, how you merge the worlds of sobriety, step work, and Hoffman. Because like you said, you know, I'd been about you'd been sober for about a year and a half prior to going to Hoffman, and now you've had, you know, well beyond six years now. So I'm I'm curious, how have you merged those worlds? A great question. I honestly, so I got sober through 12 step programs uh, very reluctantly. <laughs> I was one of the last people you would ever expect to walk into one of those rooms. I mean, I saw the word God on the wall and I, I wanted to just run. But similar to when I came into the process, very kind of scared to, I was very, it was very mysterious to me. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I I had a similar feeling when I first walked into AA, but similar to Hoffman, I was also very desperate in that time. And uh, I'm actually pretty grateful for that desperation both times, like for AA in the moment I was able to actually start working a program and get sober. And then also for when I walked into Hoffman. So it was easy for me to like kind of dive into the world of Hoffman once I showed up there. I mean, easy is a is a stretch. <laughs> it's a lot of work. I think it was so different from step work that I was just kind of ready to do this deep dive. But I did find some similarities along the way while I was there, which I can touch on soon. But I want to I talk about how it was going in, back into the 12-step rooms after Hoffman. Because it wasn't what I expected. I actually had a really difficult time jumping back into that life. So when I went back into the 12-step rooms after Hoffman, I had kind of this vision in my mind that I would be so much more into the program. I would be, I don't know, some spiritual guide for people (laughs) now that I had all this other information from the process. And it was actually quite the opposite experience. I really struggled to integrate back into meetings. Yeah, it was it was, it was a surprise because obviously, you know, once you come out of the process, there, you have a lot of new information in your head. And and I thought I knew everything there was to know about recovery. <laughs> I thought like I'd really thrown myself into the program once I got over the whole God thing, which we can also touch on. But um, once I kind of moved past that and was able to use it to my benefit. 
yeah, I really, I really thought I had it all figured out. Um, and I didn't, it really showed me that there's so many different ways to approach whether it's sobriety, recovery from anything, or just, I don't know, improving ourselves in life in general. And that was a little jarring, I'm not going to lie. But then it only took a few months and I was able to kind of apply what I had learned about myself in Hoffman to my 12-step work. And that, that was incredibly helpful. And the easiest way I was able to draw kind of comparisons between the two was, you know, talking about our negative love patterns is is very similar to something we talk about in 12-step rooms, which is our character defects. And that terminology was never my favorite because character defects in 12-step kind of refers to essentially your negative patterns. It's so things you keep doing over and over again, you may not be sure why you're doing them. Uh, but they're really not serving you or other people around you. So was it was it the concept of character defects or the language of character defects that didn't resonate? Yeah, it was the language that I struggled with because I, I didn't necessarily want to see them as, you know, I'm defective or <laughs> this is a part of me that I want to shove away from me, but rather it's a part of me for a reason. And Hoffman helped me see that reason and then turn that around. Yeah. And be able to, you know, as we encourage in the process, look at things as patterns. Yeah, exactly. And, and everything in 12 step uh, recovery rooms are always suggestions. And, you know, it is really easy to get hung up on the semantics, especially for me, especially as, you know, very liberal atheist girl growing up in the Bay Area. The God concept was also something that I really struggled with. And for some reason, tapping into a spiritual self was not a challenge for me whatsoever. And I actually remember having a very vivid image of like what my spiritual self looked like at the start of the process when a lot of people were actually struggling with that for understandable reasons. But I was just like, oh, there she is. And I know her very well. And that has been something that has directly helped me with my 12-step work as well. I love that. There she is. And I know her so well. So when you say that that concept of spiritual self, how have you, I mean, let's talk a little bit more. How have you been able to bring that language or that terminology into your step work and make that make that work? Is it just a direct substitute for you? Or how have you handled that? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm at this point now in my sobriety. And I'm very grateful to be here because I know and if you know if I stop doing the work um I could be right back at square one with where I'm at today I'm super grateful that it's actually really easy for me to just kind of you know swap it out <laughs> and uh take what works for me in step work and not take what doesn't work for me and that's okay I've learned like yes it's a spiritual program but it's not religious and I've learned, you know, you can work with anybody, a sponsor who is atheist, a sponsor who has also been to Hoffman, whatever. The key is to kind of just like, let it be what works for you. And Katie, I'm, I'm curious to hear how now years, you know, it's been several years post process, it's been more years into your sobriety. Has Hoffman contributed to your sobriety, right? Has that had an impact in how you hold sobriety or work with your sobriety? Oh, absolutely. I think it's actually a huge component of it. I basically ask my spiritual self what they have in store for me today because it's 
you know, getting sober, I had to really rely on something that wasn't myself. We learn all about how self-will can, you know, lead us back to drinking. Self-will kind of got us to our bottom. We really had to rely on something else. And for me, that that was so contradictory because I walked into a room myself. I asked to have someone sponsor me myself. Um, I am just like a harsh, harsh atheist in that regard. And, you know, honestly, I'm very, I'm always very um, envious of folks who do not have that barrier and just jump right into it. And that is absolutely amazing. But for me, the concept of my spiritual self has probably been the most monumental piece of my sobriety. It just kind of removes a barrier for me. And, you know, she's always there and I always know what she looks like. And I can tap into her so much easier (laughs) than I could, um, you know, any other, any other thing. Yeah. I mean, looking back on it, would you say your spiritual self is what guided you to that first meeting or the courage to ask, you know, someone to sponsor you or even to, to go to the Hoffman? Yes. 100%. 100%. It's what guides me, you know, into getting up and, you know, having a glass of water in the morning instead of like eating something unhealthy. It's what guides me to, you know, maybe walk that extra block when I'm walking my dog, even though I just want to go home and be lazy. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty prevalent. Yeah. And I, I think the, the thing that I keep hearing in your story, which I think is so powerful is finding what works for you and not attaching yourself to language. And we speak about that at the process too, right? And I, it's a concept that is so important to any type of growth is not to limit yourself or exclude yourself, other yourself, just because some of the languaging doesn't work. And so I think hearing how you've been able to, and and I know you very dearly, and I know that you work your steps, and I know this is a huge part of your life. And so I think that knowing that you make the steps work for you in changing up some of the language, some of the semantics, and not letting that be a barrier, right? But just saying, this is something I'm taking the good and I'm leaving what doesn't work for me is powerful stuff. Exactly, exactly. And it's, it's what they tell you to do from the moment you step into the rooms. You say, they say, look for the similarities and not the differences because, yeah, I can walk into a meeting where an 80-year-old man is talking about his you know, <laughs> life in jail or whatever, something I, I seemingly on the outside have no relation to. But I can relate to the feeling. I can relate to that powerlessness. I can relate to just the the agony of hurting the people around you, but not meaning to. So yeah, I apply that with Hoffman as well. Yeah, it's been pretty powerful. Yeah, and just that kind of shared humanity, that right, that common thread of, yeah, look for the similarities and let that touch you, let that live in you, let that grow. You know, we talk about, especially on this podcast, how love, you know, loves everyday radius. And I just think that is such a beautiful way to think about the changes that happen at Hoffman. And so what would you say is your, how Hoffman lives in you, how it ripples out and touches those around you, how it's in your everyday radius? I think it's allowed me to just be confident in who I am and, and not question like, the choices I'm making today. 
it's helped me like recognize why I'm doing the things I'm doing and that I'm not flawed. Yeah, I don't have to get down on myself for doing the things I'm doing. I can I can recognize them and I can do the work to whatever, do the opposite or whatever that looks like in the moment. Or maybe maybe it's that I need to do it and then I get to have compassion for myself after the fact. I think that's the most radiating part about this in my life today. It's just being that in the world and being confident about it. So it actually allows other people to do the same in in the rooms of AA, at work, whatever it may be. When I talk about what's true for me and what I know about myself and my experiences, it allows someone else to say, oh my God, me too. I've not heard that before. And you know, that's the ripple effect I think it has out on the world. And how do you show yourself self-compassion or self-kindness? You know, that's a good one. (laughs) Coming full circle to the workshop we met at. I think that's always going to be a struggle for me. I was also a competitive gymnast growing up and, you know, self-compassion and kind of self-care was definitely not something that was taught to me. And in fact, it was seen as a weakness. So I think that's been a huge, huge pattern to work with. And it's also something I get from both of my parents. So, you know, what that looks like for me today is sometimes just being still. I, as you know, Liz, I'm always doing things. I'm always racing around. I was trying to find the new thing, new business idea, new dog, whatever it is. And I... Sometimes I just need to pause and breathe and be okay with where I'm at and, and recognize all of my accomplishments. Yeah, I'm actually really proud of where I'm at today in life due to all the work and also just having that self-compassion along the way. Heck yeah. Yeah, thanks, Katie. Katie, any advice for those curious about how to manage or work or struggling with sobriety and personal growth, whether that be Hoffman or something else? I always just say, just talk to people about it. Like you might, whoever's listening may resonate with maybe one thing I've said, but maybe not. So there's literally so many people who have either done the process or who have gotten sober in the rooms or both in any order. And I would just say like, have humility and and show up and do those things. Just talk to those people, let them know where you're at. You never have to be anywhere other than where you already are. People will meet you there. And if you have an honest desire to improve in some way or whatever, just change something, I would just have that humility, talk about it and, and be willing to maybe do something that's uncomfortable to take that next step. Thanks, Kitty. Yeah, just show up and and have the humility. I love that. Well, thank you so much for meeting with me today and really sharing your story. It is so incredible and moving uh, to hear how you've navigated this. So thank you so much. Of course. Very excited to be here with you today, Liz. Thanks. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Rassi Rossi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.